I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. Welcome to the broadcast. This is Theology Unplugged. We are continuing our series of uh, really selfishness, Tim. This is yes. we, we have we have contacted our donors. We have said we want to bring this scholar out and selfishly it's really just to have office hours and have somebody else pay for it yeah i mean we've made up all these excuses about how it'll deepen our church in yeah, oklahoma city yeah. how it'll we invite other people to come people. and join us and yeah even have an event tonight but really it's just about us it's all about us yeah. yeah yeah we just sit around thinking who are people that we'd love to sit around a table and pick their brain even though in the members area we were just talking about how uh, Dr. Gonzalez said that's a pretty rude thing to do but you know <laughs> nonetheless he, he wasn't he just said it. over dinner yes he just said over dinner so we're doing it over coffee over so coffee. Uh, so I guess we're okay we are only feel halfway bad but it's great to have Dr. doctors uh, Catherine and Justo Gonzalez joining us uh, for these two series of podcast and we're doing it here at the credo house in the credo house uh what do you guys think of the credo house oh i think it's wonderful yeah i enjoy it especially I, the coffee the coffee great <laughs> but, but no, the theology is okay yeah, but. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, I like the decor that's one that uh, makes us uh, remember that we are constantly surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses by such a varied crowd i think if you have put all those these people together if all these people could talk right now we will have quite a discussion. Yeah, we would. <laughs> we have all kinds of different perspectives running into right at this table. Would there be peace? Uh, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> who are we missing? Who are we missing in the Credo House? Who is the next person we need to put on the wall? Hmm. Well, you can what, do with more women. Yeah, he's up there. He's up there. Yeah, on the yeah. eastern wall. Oh. I see the eastern wall over there. Over there. Okay. I don't think I don't think He's people heard by the east and the west. So yeah. we just threw them over there mm-hmm. in the east. Catherine, you were saying? I said you don't have very many women. Okay, so who are the three women we need to add to the Credo House walls? The well, sister of uh, the Cappadocians. Well, yes, uh, Macrina. Macrina. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but I would I really would Teresa is a very important. Okay. Uh, Teresa of Avila is very important. Uh, again, Julian is coming more into her own, but but the fact that she wrote just one thing and didn't have that much influence at her time, she has more influence now than she had in her own time. I think that's that's a different matter. Uh, but if you look for women in church history, you are really going to have to look at monastic life. That's where they had uh, that's where they had authority, and that's where they had experience, and that's where uh, they they did what they did. How about uh, Dorothy Sayers? Dorothy Sayers, yes. Um, her theology comes through, obviously, in the few things she wrote that were straight theology, especially her book on the Trinity. Uh, they come through in her mystery stories. You've got a great deal of complex theology and ethics in, in her books. Uh, it comes through in her, in her dramas that she did for the BBC during the war. Uh, so I think she would be very interesting. We've just opened a room in the Credo House called the Inklings Room. Yeah. Uh, who would you say is your favorite, or or who do you prefer of all the Inklings? But, but who are the? Uh, you'll have you have to define the Inklings, the inklings okay. a little would, more. Would be uh, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien. Oh, I, I think uh, Dorothy Sayers became a part of that group. Well, was, it, yes, she did. <laughs> there was just a lot of random people. Yeah, 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 yeah a lot of random people. Tolkien, I, 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 because I yeah. love his writings. Yeah. Yeah. 
But uh, Dorothy Sayers also. Uh, her her secular writings are less obviously Christian, uh, but I mean they don't work out as a as a kind of paradigm in the same way that say Tolkien's do. They're not they're not written mm-hmm. in that fashion. Uh, but she would be a very good one. We are uh, doing Theology Unplugged. This is our Converse with Scholars uh, broadcast. So those of you who are joining us, if you didn't join us last week, we are, in a sense, taking a break from the Roman Catholic series. Sam and JJ are not here with us right now. We will pick this back up, that back up next week where we're continuing to talk about the Mass mm-hmm. and uh, the Eucharist. Uh, but uh, we are talking right now to uh, Catherine and Justo Gonzalez, and uh, both uh, historians, church historians, both retired, both professors of church history, both authors in the area of church history, and both co-wrote a book called Heretics for Armchair Theologians, which is uh, whenever we have our special event here at the Credo House, what will be being discussed by Houston. Uh, we're really excited to have you guys here, but I want to talk to you guys specifically, I think, about the area that, at least broadly speaking, both of you are most passionate about or got into church history about, and something that is is if I'm having office hours with you, which I am, this is what I want to talk about. So, Tim, you can leave if you want. Okay. It doesn't matter whether you're here from now on. I'll just be a fly on the wall. (laughs) Gladly. Um, I want to talk about the issue of uh, doctrinal development and the issue of of the rule of faith, the issue of... um, how it is, let me go to the very end, and then maybe we can back up from there. How is it, and we touched on this last time, how is it that we, I'm a Protestant, I'm an evangelical Protestant, how is it that I can, can hold with integrity to a view of history with regard to the development of doctrine, yet at the same time seemingly have so many novel developments you and I would criticize probably some cults out there whenever they begin something fresh that has no connection to the past. Well, a lot of people would accuse us of inventing certain things that were not present beforehand. Most specifically, and I think this is the most important one, is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Is that a novel development in church history at the Reformation in the sense that it did not exist beforehand, and if it did, how do we justify our view of doctrinal development? I don't think we invented it at the Reformation. Okay. Uh, you no. think it was there beforehand? Oh, yes. Yeah, and it's clearly biblical. I think there's still, it means it is open to a variety of interpretations. In other words, we may be saved by grace alone, but does that grace work in us as sanctification? In which case, our works also change. I mean, and, and this is where the Calvinist stream clearly comes in, that you cannot say grace just works with no, no, no impulse towards sanctification. That the work of grace is not only absolute justification without works, and yet it also is an impulse to sanctification which leads to works. I mean, I, that's, and I think that's probably Calvin's argument with Luther more than anything else. Yeah. You see, part of what I would do is go, I would go back to what I was saying in the other podcast about the type of theology that came in precisely in around 
the predecessors of Augustine in North Africa, and then Augustine sort of sanctified and brought that to be the dominant theology in the West, which is a theology that, whose basic concern is salvation. Yeah. And I don't think the center of the gospel is salvation. Yeah, that's right. The center of the gospel is the work of God in creation and through creation, which includes salvation. But when, when you simply center on how am I saved, how are we saved, it becomes a very narrow thing. Calvin himself said that, uh, a quotation that Catherine loves to, to use, repeat all the time, that a religion that's only concerned about one's own salvation does not deserve the name of Christian. It is by definition selfish. Yeah. And does not deserve the name of Christian. Uh, so, can, you, can you repeat that again yes. just to make sure that we uh, that, chew that, on it? That a religion uh, that's only concerned about my salvation, about one's own salvation, is by itself selfish. It's concerned about me. And that makes it ipso facto non-Christian. Okay. That's his reply to satellite. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's satellite. replying to a Catholic uh, uh, as a cardinal hmm. who has criticized him and uh, on the issue of salvation. So I think, first of all, I would like to get the discussion beyond the question of salvation. Let's go further back. Now, having said that, uh, the, 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 the notion of salvation by grace appears throughout the history of the church uh, in, in different ways, uh, in ways that, that Luther did not like, but in different ways. It certainly appears in, in well, in Augustine, whom Luther interprets in such a way that he likes him, but that's not all of Augustine. But it appears even in St. Thomas Aquinas. It appears in, in, in most of the better medieval theologians. Uh, now, that is, that is coached within a, a framework, as I was saying earlier, a framework of uh, a merit and, and debt because of sin and so on. And I think the whole framework is, is what the problem is. Uh, I think the earlier church had a much wider framework. I think when you look at uh, Arrhenius, you have a much wider framework than that. Uh, Arrhenius certainly is interested in salvation, but that's not the issue. The issue is there is this God who's the creator, who leads history, who's doing certain things, and how do we join this God? Well, the salvation and, also for the, for the, of creation. That's right. It's, I mean, it's, it's not individual salvation, which is part of it, but it's what is God doing with this whole world? And that's... Now, uh, obviously, Luther said some things that had never been said before. Uh, I just heard you all saying some things that had never been said before, probably. But that is because we're all in different contexts. And uh, the theology always reflects the context we're in. And some of the things that Luther said, we can uh, still affirm, and some we shouldn't. Uh, but that doesn't mean that because Luther said it, it's something we have to say. Well, the disturbing, I think, the disturbing thing to many people, many Protestants, and maybe the objection that people would give towards the idea of justification by faith alone, you know, the, the sola fide aspect of, uh, of the Reformation, uh, would be that prior to that, while there is the idea of justification by faith, this whole idea of it being alone or the instrumental cause of justification, which became so big a part of the Reformation mm -hmm. and is still a big part of the Protestant, uh, conservative, evangelical Protestants today, um, was a notion that seemed to be at least absent because you introduce other things such as the sacramental system with, uh, at the very least, baptism having some initiatory effects. Yeah. I th 
there are Catholic historians who have said that if the Catholic Church in the 13th century had followed Thomas Aquinas, there probably would not have been a Protestant Reformation. Uh Uh, And I think there is some truth to that. There was a decay of theology in the late Middle Ages, in the the 14th, 15th century, Mm -hmm. that led to very serious problems. And it was partly a complete separation uh, from what could be understood intellectually and what the church taught. Uh, so you had, to, you had to agree with what the church taught, but it had no necessary relevance to what any rational human being would have done in the same circumstances. So then you get a way in which you earn merits towards your salvation, but they are pretty strange things that you have to do. And that's where all these churchy things come in. You have to go on a pilgrimage, or you, you, you have to burn candles, or you have to go to a novena, or you have to, I mean, they become things that are supportive of the church. You have to give money to the church. You have to do a whole variety of things, and even the sacraments. And that, that was one of the things that made so much difference. Communion no longer became a means of grace in which you had some sense that you were encountering God it became a good work. Once you make the sacraments a good work, you have completely eliminated the whole means of grace system, which was there in Thomas. Thomas doesn't come in again until the Council of Trent. But Protestants disagree completely with that late Middle Ages form of theology. And so what you get is the reaction, which is not the reaction that would have been there had you been following Thomas Aquinas. I mean, it's, it turns out historically very different. But, but it, was, it was the late Middle Ages that really demolished uh, what would have been uh, a decent system of theology. And the Council of Trent is trying to completely undo that system, and yet they're left with a great deal of it. Coming back to your question, I'm going to say something that might be strange. But why not out Luther, Luther? If salvation is by grace, I prefer the word salvation by grace and by faith. Because salvation by faith implies that somehow you say by, by believing this and believing that and the other and, and by doctrines and so on. I think what Luther meant was really salvation, salvation by, by an act of God. Uh, salvation by grace. If you believe by salvation by grace, it means that even people who don't believe in salvation by grace can be saved. Do you follow what I'm saying? In other yeah, words, yeah. in other words, if if I am saved not by something that I do, but by God's sovereign decision and, and will and God goodwill and grace, then uh, Augustine may have been wrong, but uh, the same grace that saved me saves him. Hmm. So you don't have that 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 problem of of uh, you know if you don't believe these seven doctrines, you you're not saved because uh, because mm-hmm. salvation by faith goes beyond that. Yeah. Faith is not a work. And if it's not a work, then it means that somebody who might disagree, who may be wrong, can still be saved by Well, in the Calvinistic tradition, the faith (laughs) itself is a result of of a regenerating grace within you, so Mm -hmm. it can't ever be placed upon that. Okay, let me try to approach this a little bit different way. And I I know what you're saying, and I, I, I I agree with you very much that people who do not have perfect doctrine... Uh, 
perfect doctrine is not required to be saved. Uh, for instance, uh, I, I believe that people, we're all going to get to heaven and realize at a greater level of intensity and understanding the, what grace really was and how radical it was. And how wrong we were. How wrong we were. How, That's how right. much we <laughs> didn't even live up to it. And so, um, but uh, let's try to take it this way with regard to doctrinal development and our understanding, mm -hmm. starting with Irenaeus and moving mm -hmm. through the, you know, the, the canons of truth as they develop through the councils and as mm -hmm. we get this body of truth that, that we, we get so large that that we're, we're really, it's overwhelming because there's so many things that we have to believe now. And then we're always like, well, let's just back up. Do we understand them correctly? Let me ask it this way. We, we believe in, in, in the Bible, there's a progressive revelation. You know, Abraham wasn't given the full everything. Whenever he understood the gospel, he understood a certain complement of the gospel. As it goes throughout the scriptures and Christ comes, the fuller complement of the gospel is given. And so we can have a full understanding of the gospel, at least now then, say, Abraham did, right? Even though he's saved by the same gospel, it's a content issue that is greater with regard to grace and truth being realized through Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't know that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, that he was going to die on the cross, raised from the mm -hmm. grave, so on and so forth. Can you and I today, sitting here discussing theology in the year 2013... Can we say that we can have a better understanding of theology, and maybe a wiser understanding is what I'm trying to say here, than say Augustine, than say Irenaeus, than say Aquinas? Because we have been through the heresies, been through the battles, we, we have matured, we've got battle scars. Is it possible? I'm not saying do we, I'm saying is that possible? They didn't have television to rot their brains, though, oh. like we did. <laughs> yeah, but, but also I'm not sure that this was all an expansion of many, many more things to believe. I think in some ways it was a narrowing and narrowing and narrowing yeah. of, no, that option's out, you must believe this. That option's out, you must believe this. So that in a certain sense, the history of doctrine is a narrowing from a broader form that yeah. was there. What I find fascinating is to go back. That's why I'm not sure progressive. It's, if it's progressive, it's rather uneven. Because there are many things, I think, that Isaiah understood that I'm not sure Ezra and Nehemiah did. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it's a little uneven. Um, but when I go back to Irenaeus, and I think that's why, at least for me, that was very important. It is a going back to something when when issues were less narrowed. Uh, it's not that that things developed out of that. It's that, in a sense, partly because of the history of the West with the barbarian invasions and all the rest. Once you have Augustine, everything else for for a millennium after that is read through Augustine, and Augustine had narrowed completely from earlier theology that was much more Eastern. I mean, so that Irenaeus really represented in an earlier theology, a much more, a theology that's much more represented in the New Testament in, ma in many ways. And to rediscover what's there before Augustine is a great help. And it's partly because things narrowed in Augustine. I mean, so, so it's going back to pick up themes and forms of theology that were earlier and had been discarded. 
uh, in the West. They remained in the East in many respects. But don't we have the tendency in our doctrine to become, even though you say it's a narrowing, maybe are you saying it should be a narrowing or it actually is? It actually is. Because don't we become more legalistic as we move through? That's right. There's a danger of that. But the other side of that is that, as I was saying in one of your groups, Humanity has this unique gift of learning by the experience of others. So what we're going to talk about later is if somebody falls in a hole, that tells us there's a hole there. Yeah. So now we know something that was not done before. And in that sense, yes, theology develops. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity was formulated in various ways, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of, of uh, Constantinople, and so on. But that does not mean that the people before that were heretics. It just means that, that they had not seen yet the problems that various positions would show. And some of the things that you can read, for instance, in Justin, who's writing in the second century, if written in the fifth, would have been considered a heresy. Mm. And that doesn't mean that Justin was a heretic. It just means that he had not faced the problems that the church faced through the fourth century that made the say, no, you know, here are some problems that you have to avoid. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's a sense, yes, in which there's a growth of doctrine, but if it's, if it's healthy, it's not a growth in the sense of narrowing. You have more things than believe. It is in the sense of widening in the sense that you understand better uh, what the dangers are. Yeah. Yeah, and in a sense, wisdom has grown. Wisdom has grown. I mean, uh, you know that that uh, that uh, that position is a problem because so and so said it, and these are the consequences. And look what happens. And so I'm not going to take that position because of the consequences. Uh, that doesn't mean that that uh, somebody who before that took that position and didn't follow those consequences necessarily has to be ruled out. It just means that they didn't have the experience to know that those were the consequences. Hmm. You said in the last broadcast something that probably very controversial to our audience um, made me rise, rise my eyebrow, and I want to discuss this for a little bit. You said that people are not saved by doctrine, which, which I think I understand what you're saying, and I think I agree with, but my, my issue is whenever you're battling her- heresies and difficulties in the church, um, is it not a doctrine such as monotheism, you know? Uh, Mm-hmm. Of course, we're not saved by monotheism or the sense that we believe it. But is where, where is the line in church history and in the Bible to where we say, well, there is this point that you can't cross anymore. I mean, you can't you can't say Jesus was uh, you know a, a an alien from Mars and that he came mm-hmm. down here and mm-hmm. became a Martian and you know I, I don't know what what you would say. But there's a, there's a line that's crossed to where you have you you are wrong about Jesus. Your doctrine is wrong, mm-hmm. which evidences very deeply that the Holy Spirit is not moving within you to produce the mm-hmm. the common belief that has been shared. And and the, it's partly where does such a judgment belong. And the church has clearly said it is the church that makes those judgments. I mean, now with a variety of denominations, it's it's still, it's the churches that make that. I don't set up my own private system. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's one thing. Yeah. Uh, and the church largely does it in terms of who is to preach so that the message that is proclaimed will be the same message that you're not proclaiming an alien message. I mean, I think that's... Yeah. Now, when you get down to 
the, the, the believers in the pews. There hasn't been that much, <laughs> until you get the Inquisition, uh, there hasn't been that much of saying exactly how do we judge your doctrine. It's been basically the church as an institution having the right to determine who will proclaim the gospel and making sure it is the same gospel. And, and so the question of where are you drawing the lines, for whom are you drawing the lines, and does that mean that I decide that the person sitting next to me in the pew shouldn't be here? I mean, that's, you know, I think that's, or, or how do we teach the people in the church what is, what, what is truth? Uh, but, but where it's each Christian deciding that the, the, the next Christian they meet is, is or is not a true one. I mean, I think that's where we run. But isn't that Protestantism's the- dangerous idea that we have to bite and chew and deal with, spit out the bones? I mean, uh, isn't that something that's a consequence of us not having a magisterial authority? But we do have a magisterial authority. Okay, what is that? Presbytery. I mean, for me, I mean, I, I live in a, I'm in a confessional church. But it's not an infallible one. No, no, and I wouldn't even say Rome's got one. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That, uh, that's right. But churches, denominations, institutions have a right to determine who will proclaim in that church. And I think almost every church does that in some fashion. Uh, well, l- let me get real practical then yeah. and say this is my, my good friend, uh, John. And John mm-hmm. and I are sitting here talking about Jesus. And he says, you know, I really like Jesus too. And, and I say, oh, yeah, well, describe your Jesus to me. And he goes on and he describes something that is just completely foreign yeah. to the proclamation yeah. of the right. historic Christian I, faith I, and I, the Bible. And you, and you tell him, I think you're wrong. And you yeah, discuss and, it with him and you try to correct him. And you make sure he doesn't uh, preach in your church. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that, no, that's the other issue. The issue is more... Who teaches in the name of the church? That's exactly right. In other words, I was just thinking right now, as Catherine was talking about a passage in Augustine when he's talking about the Pelagian controversy. And he said that walking around Carthage, he heard some people saying these strange things, which are basically what Pelagians are going to say. And he didn't pay attention because that's what they were saying. It is when the Pelagians begin making this a teaching that he enters into the into the struggle, yeah. but as long as he's and he enters that, in as the bishop, he, he enters because he's a bishop and and he has to determine, make sure that what's being preached in his churches is, is right doctrine. Now, uh, if somebody out there in the, in the market where well, he heard these people say that, he may disagree, and he may try to convince them, but he has no business forbidding them to think that. That's right. But he has business forbidding a bishop, a pastor, of preaching something that is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think every church, even in so-called independent churches, have that. Uh, in independent churches where the pastor is the big honcho, uh, the pastor decides who can teach Sunday school and who cannot, and decides that on some basis. So there's a certain sense in which when you talk about, about heresy, you're not talking just about the idea. You're talking also about uh, what stamp of authority it receives. Mm-hmm. And who gives you that sample of authority? But e- even inclusive of the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church or any type of magisterial authority that is included, I mean, you do have thousands of different authorities. And the biggest question from the outside world or to an unbeliever is saying, who are you to say that you're any more right than the next person? So let's all just live in this kind of relativistic view of Jesus, and you'll have your Jesus, no. and I'll have my Jesus. Oh, that's, that's part of the problem of denominationalism. Well, it's also part of the problem with uh, uh, Western individualism. Yes. 
that we think that we really think for ourselves. We don't. We are part of a community, and uh, and uh, you know, well, I am I, but I'm also you. There's something mm-hmm. sense in which in which without you, I'm not I. And and uh, uh, it's that individualism that that says, well, you know, think and let think, and you go out, and and in some ways, to me, that is a a denigration of the other person. In other words, if, if you don't if you don't care what the other person thinks, you really don't care for the other person. So there's a responsibility of trying to correct those who disagree with you, respectfully, lovingly, but correct them. Now that's that's one issue. When you're talking about people in the pew, you have the obligation to try to correct each other. But now if you are the person in charge of determining who's going to teach in your church, then the standards are different. Because then that person is speaking in the name of the church. And and your responsibility is to make sure that what the church teaches is correct. And therefore, then you have responsibility to say, no, no, you can't say that. Mm-hmm. Or you can say it, but you can't teach. <laughs> you can think it, but you can't teach it. Yeah, yeah. You can, you know, you, you, if you're going to teach in, in this church, this is what you're going to teach. And I think every church has, that has, has that responsibility. And any church that abdicates that responsibility very soon dissolves. Well, and I think that should be encouraging to all the church leaders that are listening, because I think so often with Western individualism, the idea is, well, if the pastor starts saying something that I don't want to hear, I'm going to go to a different church. And as soon as he start, that pastor starts saying something I don't want to hear, I'll go to another church. Or I'll and, find my own. Yeah, or I'll start my own, or I'll just uh, have bedside Baptists and stay home and, and just be a Christian at home. And uh, and so I think, like, uh, you know, hopefully if you're listening to this and you're a church leader, uh, that gives you confidence that you know God has given you that authority even though you need to steward it well uh, but then if you are the individual in the pew that you need to recognize that God has given authority to those above you and that they are uh, overseers uh, of the community yeah. and, and, and obviously as Protestants we certainly believe uh, that scripture is, is, is a, 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 it's an authority above the authority. Yes, yes. Yeah. And and so if you are a lay person, you have the responsibility of uh, uh, calling your leaders to task on, on Scripture, too, if you, if you feel they're Or saying, I really don't understand this passage yeah. and how it is that yeah. our church doesn't deal with this. Yeah. But yeah. isn't the same thing whenever we come to this issue and going all the way back, and I think we've got to wrap things up, but with our view of history and the importance of history, because... I don't believe that anything that I teach is novel, especially whenever it comes to the fundamental issues of who Jesus Christ is, what he did, and the basic beliefs that have been proclaimed for the last 2,000 years. But if you don't know church history, you don't know whether it's That's novel. Right. That's right. That's right. And, and, and part of the problem that we have is that we have all these people who are suddenly discovering the truth. Mm. Yeah. And they discover some particular verse in the Bible that is key to everything, as, it's, as if it were all a, a big... Uh, game that God has been playing on the whole of humanity until mm-hmm. I came around mm-hmm. and, and saw this verse that tells everybody what the solution is. Or you died and had a near-death experience that told you everything, that's right? right? That's right. And I think that that's, again, part of the same individualism. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the, of, the, of the greatest threats to the teaching of the church today. It's, it's, uh, it's that kind of uh, uh, Christian who has no rootage in the Christian tradition. No anchor. No anchor. Okay. And, and this might be a good wrap-up. I don't think we ever got to why you love church history, Catherine, why you love church history, <laughs> and why you think other people who are maybe starting to say, hmm, maybe I need to look in this area, why they should love church history as well. 
I love church history because in it I live with many very dear friends, uh, people who are as fallible or as I am, as mixed up sometimes as I am, as uh, faithful or unfaithful as I am, and who yet somehow God used for the, for, the, for the good of the church and the community. And in many ways that gives me hope because it means that uh, I too might be able to do some good. <laughs> uh, that I don't have to be uh, uh, that ideal angel, uh, perfect, but that somehow, you know, gee, if God used Luther and, and Calvin, and, and, uh, and all, that, all that I know about Luther and Calvin, perhaps God can use me too. <laughs> oh, wow. Tim, you glad we invited him? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to recover from the goosebumps right now. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, this has been truly wonderful. Uh, Catherine, we never heard from you why you love church history. Um, when I was in seminary, I think it was the first year in seminary, I was taking a, book, a course on Psalms. And I kept hearing it was the church's prayer book. And I thought, that's strange. There are a few of them that I really like. But thankfully, most of the time, I'm not being chased by enemies. I haven't fallen into a pit. And I, the thought that this was a book used as the church's song book, song book I, I really had a hard time with. And then it dawned on me that both Luther and Calvin, who said this, both of them, had been trained in the monastic forms. And so I picked up a short form of the breviary, the monastic book of Psalms. And there, for every morning, they had a passage from an ancient writer. And so I'd read a passage from Augustine, and then one from Leo. And I thought, my heavens, there's some wonderful things here that I, you know, some of the best theology I'd ever heard. That was wonderful. And it was, in a sense, it was that use of it that made me want to go back and read these people and read what they had written uh, in larger chunks than I got in, the, in Lauds. So that was, that was the way I got into it. And then I still like Psalms, but, I, but it, was, it was the running into these readings from the ancient writers that I just found wonderful. Uh, they, answer, they, they just were the, some of the best theology I'd ever seen. Well, Tim, we're going to have to wrap this uh, episode of Theology Unplugged Up. I kept to my word and didn't call on any of the audience members. As a matter of fact, I kept from making eye contact with anybody <laughs> the entire time so that, I, so that I didn't feel bad. Yeah, but, but we're uh, very thankful that they're here. Yeah, we're, Thank we're thankful for you guys yeah. for being here, and uh, we uh, hope to have you again sometime. And those of you who are listening to this broadcast, you can you can uh, listen to what is going to happen tonight right in the members area. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that's right. And in our members area, too, we've been videotaping these uh, podcasts. And so if you're listening, you're like, I want to see what they look like, and uh, and I want to just be able to see them drinking coffee while we're sitting around this table in the Credo House. Uh, that'll be on there as well. Will it have me spiking my coffee? No, it won't. <laughs> Unless we, I guess we could do an animation or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next week.